it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Raj Gopalan, 
Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg. Explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG guys. Hello, folks, and welcome to this episode of the CPG Guys podcast, where we explore the omni-channel digital journey of brands, retailers, and service providers. Of course, your co-host from the West Coast, right here in Los Angeles, California. And today I'm local for this episode at the Nielsen MIQC360 conference, recording along with none other than my co-host of the Gildenberg Omni comment Thursdays and the founder of Confluencer Commerce, Brian, our co-host. Brian, thanks for joining us during June Gloom. You picked an awesome month of the year to visit us. Welcome to Los Angeles. What's going on? Oh, it's not that gloomy today. It's really nice. And by the way, if you want June Gloom, you got to come back to the East Coast where we were all basically sitting in a giant fireplace being powered by some Canadian. It was actually so bad yesterday in New Jersey, you couldn't go outside and breathe. You're going to ask him to swap for some poutine? Yeah, 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 we're yeah. We're, it's fortunate it's all char grilled at this point. My my, my daughter's remarking Timbits maybe. <laughs> yeah, and uh, some Tim Hortons and uh, yeah, we're all good. My my daughter's remark is like, this is nice. It's like there's a barbecue all the time. <laughs> like it's, it's I mean, weird. the pictures look tremendous, by the way. I yeah, hope you guys real. are okay, and I hope everything is. Okay yeah, and, and the pair. In all seriousness, uh, shout out to everybody back there, and I th- I do think that the uh, the air quality to get better as well. Before we get to our guests here today, let me remind our audience to visit cpgguys.com where you can find links to our podcast on all the major and minor podcast platforms. And if you're not already doing so, take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn where we publish new content each and every day of the week, even on the weekends and seven days a week out. We're also proud to be sponsors of Next Up, formerly Network of Executive Women, whose mission is to advance all women in business and to promote gender equality in the workplace. As supporter-level sponsors of Next Up, we are afforded 50 memberships, which Peter, Brian, and I are looking to allocate to female entrepreneurs or women working at companies that are not currently partnering with Next Up. If you would like to avail of a membership in Next Up, please email us at contact at cpgguys.com. Again, that email is contact at cpgguys.com. The digital liner notes of this episode, of course, will contain hyperlinks to our site, a LinkedIn page, and a landing page on Next Up site. And now let me see the magic words. Let's go, CPG guys. Let's go. Today's CPG landscape, of course, has access to unprecedented data streams, syndicated, aggregated sales data, POS retail data, consumer data, DDC delivers direct access to shopping habits, and now retail media. Then there's econometrics, weather, political, so many types of data that often brands can spend years building a data infrastructure and not being able to leverage it. The winners embed the data and results from it via insights and decision-making. And now, of course, there's retail media. Remember now, for the first time, it's real full-funnel marketing. Then AI is making data processing so much easier and relevant, including predictions of the future. All this means brands should get the innovation pipeline and portfolio to near success with every SKU they release. Yet, we only find 5% of all CPG innovation truly succeeds and actually scales. So here to talk with us today about the current state of innovation in the CPG industry post-COVID and I mentioned post-COVID, is the SVP of Omni Solutions for Nielsen IQ, Jenny Frazier, and the SVP for North America Retail Measurement Products, Justin Belgiano. Justin, Jenny, welcome to the CPG guys. How are you guys doing? Absolutely great. I would say uh, gloomy June with palm trees will take it. So doing wonderful. Absolutely. Couldn't be happier to be here in LA. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much to the both of you for joining us today and for NIQ to know that I live here in Los Angeles. Brian was going to be here in Los Angeles, and you guys are actually here, and it's a pleasure doing this live and meeting you both in person. So I'm incredibly excited to speak with you today about a space that I've spent three decades of my own career watching, 
sometimes being part of the incubating process for SKUs, and yet accounting only for 5% of CPG success regardless of category. So I'm hoping you'll have a magic unlock sitting somewhere for me today. And so before we get to the detailed questions that we've prepared for you today, it'll be great, Jenny, if you gave us a brief overview of Nielsen IQ and your particular role there. Absolutely. So at Nielsen IQ, we are the world's leading consumer intelligence company, and we deliver what we call the full view. So what is that? It's what consumers buy. It's where they buy it. It's why they buy it. It's it's who buys it. So we have more data in more channels, more sources for more consumers and more regions, 90 countries and counting, than anyone else in the world. And really, our passion is about understanding consumers' evolving behavior. My particular role is in the Omni space. And so what I focus on is what's happening online, offline, and the intersection of both of those. Prior to working in Omni, I worked in the innovation space for over two decades. So I'm particularly passionate about this topic. Thank you so much for that summary, Jenny. That was awesome. In the digital liner notes of this episode, we will, of course, place links to both your LinkedIn profiles, of course, NIQ's LinkedIn page, as well as the company website. That way, people listening in can easily connect back with you straight from their smartphones, which is what 95% of audience uses to listen to the show and watch these clips. Justin, take a moment and give us a brief overview of your role at NIQ. So I'm a Senior Vice President of Product Leadership for Retail Measurement Services in North America. And really, that is a response to all of our clients and customers and retailers, uh, largely having been trying to accumulate a lot of data themselves outside traditional channels. My responsibility is to bring in all of that new visibility, new measurement, so that what we give our customers, clients, is the fullest possible view of what's happening in the marketplace in North America. Thank you so much, Justin. And uh, we will jump right into it. So uh, NIQ, of course, just like the CPG guys, Brian and me here, has seen trends shape over the last three years over COVID. Now, I think it's safe to say when the CDC has declared COVID is over that we are in a post-COVID world. What's going on? What are you guys seeing? Are there categories that are leading the way here in a post-COVID world? And uh, let me ask you that question, Jenny. Yeah. So we're going to talk post-COVID world, but I do want to mention what happened during COVID with innovations. We all know the stories about supply chains and out of stocks, but what happened is the manufacturers and retailers were so focused on those issues that innovation stopped being a conversation. We saw a significant decline in not only the number of innovations that were launched, but the number of innovations that were even being incubated and researched and thought about. So that really led to a decline across all categories within innovation. Retailers were interested in putting them on the shelf. Manufacturers didn't have the resources or time to put against them. So obviously, the way that you grow as a company is really through innovation. That's really where you get your incremental growth. So Manufacturers got some amount of incremental growth coming from inflation, but they've taken as much price as they can. So we're finally seeing that decline in innovation stop, and we're actually starting to see it pick up in a couple of key categories. So personal care is one. Snacking is another. If we look online within personal care, really we see a lot of innovation happening in the beauty space. If we look in store, the one place where there is really big innovation, which might be a really big surprise is private label. I think a lot of people may not realize that, but private label is by far and away innovating more than really any other space there. And it's because they've been asking manufacturers to have new products in certain places. And so they're just doing it themselves. They have been able to build up 
brand equity over time. And so by doing that, they've got a lot of consumer loyalty that they're really taking advantage of. And by that, you mean the retailers are the retailers, the retailers know the can see the opportunity in the marketplace. Absolutely. But they also can see when when big ideas come out there, they're becoming the fast followers there. And so forever, the way that it works is retailers ask manufacturers to innovate in a particular category, and now they're able to do it themselves. If you think about the the private label brands of Walmart and Target, they have brand equity and awareness just as high as many of the other big national brands out there. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting, too, that because a lot of the white space in innovation today is being created by these sort of cracks that have come up in what I would call conventional product price architecture. Mm-hmm. As everything got more expensive, it created like white space there. The retailers might be able to see that more easily because they can see the whole category, right? Absolutely. So they can see the white spaces more clearly. And it's just fascinating that they're then using private labels when they close that. That's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, interesting. So, Justin, we can... Uh, we can agree now that the world is omnichannel because if we can't agree on that, we can't agree on anything. Um, so uh, we're all omnichannel now. And Jenny, I like the way that you put that in your introduction as you call that sort of the intersection of, uh, of online and offline. So if you're incubating new ideas, this has got to mean then more than just the traditional techniques that you would use, you know, the traditional end cap, the traditional TV ad, or even the traditional sponsored search or sponsored product campaign solely in the digital world. So what's needed to incubate innovation today for this new omni-channel reality? I think, Brian, one of the things that we've talked about omni-channel so long, Mm -hmm. right, it's had a kind of evolving definition. And I think we always talked about in-store, and then we talked about online, Right in an omni, but really in a world in which those aren't as distinct channels as we once talked about. Right, right. As they've converged, when we're now we're saying omni-channel, we are just talking about there's a channel where consumers are buying. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of dollars and shoppers are doing it in both places. So we're not talking to necessarily different shoppers. We're not even talking about different parts of the wallet that they're spending. Mm-hmm. So if we think about innovation or products, we actually have to choose things that succeed in all places. Mm-hmm and not see online as such a distinctive place. Now, obviously, we'll get into all the nuances of things you can do online, but we look at the speed at which you succeed or fail online is so accelerated. You can't afford to use that as a testing ground for half-thought ideas and kind of do test and learn. We often say you will test, you just won't learn because it's going to move so quickly, right? You will win or you will lose. It's going to be a fun exercise. It. You've tested and you learn nothing. <laughs> test, what did you learn? You learn right? some Benjamins. That's it. That's yeah. it. And, and if you think about, you know, in the offline world or in store, when you put a new product out, you had time, right? And in fact, you wouldn't even, don't pay attention to it for six, eight, 12 weeks to really know what happened. We see within the first week, right, eight and a half times more clicks, on a product that's going to succeed going into its second week. So in week one, Hmm. right, you begin that path to success or an accelerated potential death spiral. So as the measurement captain, does that mean, Justin, then the judgment on success has narrowed from these eight, 12 weeks of being at the shop in store to like a week, two weeks online? Yes. And and you have to then be able to act on it. That's big news because that means for vendors or um, manufacturers who are creating new brands, new products, mm-hmm. new SKUs, that's a awfully tough pill to swallow that in two weeks, judgment is being passed and to react. Well, yes. and, and I think it'll also change some of the launch strategy as well, because if you look at a category where people learned this years ago, it was in pharma, right? So, and you can basically predict with about 90 to 95% accuracy how a pharma product is going to perform over the 17-year life of its patent based on basically how it performs in its first month after launch. 
Now everybody knows that. So as a result, the way in which those products are marketed is so aggressively front-loaded that I think with data like yours, you're probably going to see a lot more front-loading of innovation campaigns as a way to cut through clutter and and create engagement. Yeah, and and we worked with manufacturers earlier. You know, it's not hard to put an image up and content to sell. That's how it was, right? So you you could actually try a lot of things and see and tweak. But now... Right, because you have to put it on shelf. But in this case, you're not going to learn that. So what you actually want to put on, in some ways, not with the slowness of the old in-store model, right. but you put forward a product that you genuinely believe is going to succeed because it needs to. And that's yeah. all channels, not just we'll try it online and we'll do something different in-store. I need to take the best product that's going to succeed everywhere and go forward with that and support it. Yeah. The difference with the in-store and online is going to be more nuanced in terms of the assortment. So you can only have three or four facings in a store, but you can have those really strange, weird SKUs that reach smaller people, and you can have that kind of assortment online. Yeah, ex- yes. and, and with the caveat that I really do then need to come up with a messaging strategy to surface those SKUs, because yes. I, I was at a presentation the other day, people kept talking about, oh, online, you've got 4,800 skincare SKUs. It's like, so, like nobody's ever going to yeah. see those, right? right? right. Like you can't see 4,800 SKUs presented to you at one yes. time. Online, you actually usually have a narrower range of choice visually than you do in true. the physical world. So it's how you cue that up to get that in front yep. of the right the right audience. No one critical. goes to the second page. People think of it no. as, as an infinite shelf, but it is far from an infinite shelf. No, no. Uh, that's one of Mike Black from Profit Terror. One of his yes. big was, yeah. The best place to bury a dead body is on page two of the search results. So, uh, <laughs> and, and Jenny, before I... Go into the next question and we continue this conversation. Our audience would love to know from you both. You refer to the full view right up front, right? Now we just said a few minutes ago that judgment is going to be passed in the first eight weeks and a lot of it will be noticed online. Does the full view that Nielsen offers give such a view that you can see both online and in store good enough to make that judgment? I have to say without a doubt, yes. We are extremely proud of that. And when we think about when the e-commerce data first started coming through, people looked in-store and separately online. And what we've learned and what we know is that it's all the same consumer. 86% of us are omni-consumers. Everyone is shopping online, offline. So it's not just what's happening in-store, online, but really, when are you switching? Why are you switching? Why are you going back and forth? What brings you in to subscribe and save here, but then go do a shop-up trip in a brick-and-mortar store? So it is absolutely, I would say, the most essential part of what we give our clients is our OmniView. And I can't help but jump in because this is what I wake up every day thinking about and I'm passionate about, right? right? And that is it. And it used to be a world where it was, we just need to get as much information as possible and kind of put it in this bucket. And you just have a, a complicated series of Venn diagrams of data. Mm-hmm. So that very fundamental first question of what's happening in store and what's happening online, I have to be able to see that with clarity or else I can't understand either of those in good context. And that, that's everything we put our energy into, not only from data sources, but then to how we actually work with that data to give that clarity. And if you can't see it in context, you're going to overemphasize one thing or another in these places. That, Brian, that's a big part. You know what? I figured it out, man. That's why C360. You like that? What's there that? You go. There you, you go. You All the way around. That's right. <laughs> all your life is a circle, Shri. Jim Gloom is all of a sudden going to go So um, next one's for you, Jenny. So we kind of already declared TV is a little old school. Even Google, Yahoo, digital media, they've been around over a decade and a half. So technically, I think it's okay for me to say old school. 
give us the scoop on what you see at NIQ as full funnel marketing and what emphasis should one put on the lower funnel piece, which is really e-commerce, e-commerce. in full funnel marketing versus the upper funnel acquisition, especially for innovation that's put in the marketplace. Yep, yep. So without a doubt, goes without saying, uh, e-com has compressed that marketing funnel, right? So when you think about an innovation, it always starts with 0% awareness, 0% distribution, and that's a marketer's job is to be able to get those to be up as high as possible so that people can then decide to convert to a purchase. When we look in e-commerce, the awareness and the distribution and the purchase decision are all made in one spot. So it's all happening right there. And you've got to be able to convert to e-retail media to be able to, to take advantage of that. Obviously, influencer marketing is a fantastic example of that. This is no longer new news. This is now the absolute normal. Every single brand needs to be thinking of that. Because when you think of the influencer, they're not only making you aware of the product, but they've got a link to the purchase, but they have so much credibility and trust. And so that that brand equity element is just automatically baked into that. There's two other dimensions that I do want to point out when it does come to innovations in the e-commerce world. The first one is search engine optimization is absolutely critical. We know that consumers don't search for a brand. They search for ingredients. They search for categories. They search for benefits and needs. And so you have to be able to understand how to optimize search and pay for that and put important resources behind that. And then we've already talked about the second page, but findability. If you can't find it, it doesn't matter how much you're aware of it or how much you'd like to buy it, you're just not going to be able to convert that to a purchase. And then Justin, from a measurement perspective, influencers, right? That part still appears a little vague to me in terms of can we measure success? Are you all starting to think about how to actually measure it? Yes. So one is seeing it clearly. The other is being able to put it in a structured way so that it kind of what we call measurement or investment grade going to make investments can it meet that grade so having those conversations with those companies and also looking about how do we genuinely track those purchases in a way that you can really see the results and it really our goal is to get as much as possible to investment grade so solve a mystery for our listeners does that mean you'll have to actually collect and work with tiktok data are we talking working directly with influencers like i just want to build some confidence in our listeners here that this is doable so the way that we see it is to actually work with those platforms so gotcha. sure it, because that they're going to be the best ability. They want to measure it themselves and understand it in context, right? right? And then they will allow us to do it in the most structured way possible. Can, so and, I, can I, and can I bug you for, because I love yeah. that phrase, investment grade. Can I just bug you for a follow-up on, if you were to look at the attributes of what makes an influencer campaign investment grade versus not, I mean, obviously size of audience is probably going to be one of the critical factors. Are there other critical factors that, people listening to this can use to think through what are the types of things that would typically yield an investment grade type partnership. When I think about that, one is it is size, but sure. it's also you have to actually see results, right? So you can have a you can have a lot of followers in that environment. Right. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean you have the purchase influence. Right. So we usually just equate followers with influence. Yes. And that's not what you see. Okay. Right? So it is part of it if you can track the purchasing, right. that actually changes you're talking about a purchase influencer is more important than just any influencer. Right. So if there's a podcast network, hypothetically, that hypothetically. had 22,000 followers on LinkedIn, yes. that would be 
we would be close to investment growth. Very, very close. Asking, to ask, asking, <laughs> asking, for a friend. asking for a friend. Yes, yes. very um, close. I'm going to start listening to another podcast. You should check it out, Sri. It's pretty good. Um, the last so, piece, if you don't mind, yeah. if I can just yeah. jump in there, I think that people can get kind of turned around like, oh, okay, it's new media, it's hard, it's this and that. Like I said, it's still about generating awareness and you need to go where the eyeballs are. So, 20 years ago, it was cable. 10 years ago, it's online. So all we're doing is just really measuring the reach and the frequency of people hearing about our brand and how well you're able to convert that. It's really measured the same way. And the ad dollars just move around to where those eyeballs are. And right now, they're on TikTok. And yeah. so you've got to be able to measure that and, and put your money behind that. And I also I also think there's an interesting element of that that ties back to a word, Justin, you've used a few times, which is context. Because uh, you... You can't buy eyeballs the same way in one context versus another, or if what you're doing just won't work as effectively. And this is, no, you don't need to hear my problems with the media industry right now in terms of <laughs> the way in which it doesn't evaluate context very well, uh, that it really does try to boil everything down to a simple algebraic equation about how many eyeballs are we buying and what we're trying to do. And I agree with the basic thesis here that the context yields a lot more nuance in that conversation. Right. So, and then to build on that a little bit, Let's talk about data and innovation, because I think one of the things that you've laid out so far, I think, is a really interesting case for this, which is that if you're going to have such a short window of time for this innovation, you're going to need data on other innovations in order to be able to figure out whether or not your innovation is going to work. You're going to need things like playbooks. You're going to need things like best practice. You're going to need things like roadmaps that are all derived from other campaigns that we use, because by the time you launch this campaign, by the time you can fix it, it's done. Yes. So you need the data from an innovation point of view. So let's talk about the availability, the synthesization, uh, the conversion to insights. What types of data are you guys working with that lets you really tell a story about launching a product? And what are the data metrics that matter most when you're looking at trying to create this sort of innovation information funnel? This is something that Jenny and I talk about because there's principles and then there's the data itself. So right. we'll, you're going to hear us kind of take different approaches on this, or at least a unified approach on it. When we think about data itself, right, we look at that as saying uh, you take the best available data in whatever format it can be taken in, mm -hmm. right? So in a traditional world, it's POS, and then we move to EPOS, right? And obviously, if we could get the entire world to follow that model, that would be but I always say, you know, try to convince Kylie Jenner what market share is, right? right and why she needs it. It's, it's a long <laughs> journey, right? So where else do we get data from, right? right? So we have POS and EPOS as much as possible. Then what can we create that is as close to the accurate weight of POS data? Right. That's when we get to uh, scraping, sales estimation, right? Algorithmic models that really get that fine-tuned and tight and get better over time. Guesses that went to college, yes. So, uh, gotcha. <laughs> yes. So, so we, we have that. And now consumer source data can fit its appropriate role. If you try to do too much with that, it, it's going to collapse under the weight. Right. Right. So we take all of those pieces. Now, the hard thing is it's very disaggregate. It's not even, right? And so that's where we put our expertise on that information of say we, we have to clarify what that is so that it can be looked across in an easy way. So that, that's a that's a big part of what we say from data sources, but really it's like, well, then what can you do with it? And that is, it needs to be clear and clean enough, right, that I can see it granularly, I can decompose it in its unique places right. so that I can begin to use that information. And it has to be fast, right? And we know that. And all data sources come in at different points in time. And sometimes we think because of the internet, it's the fastest thing in the world. And that's not always the way it is. And so it's how you take those pieces and put them together, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. 
So that that's data inaccuracy. And obviously, I could talk for three hours on that, right? But I think some of it is the principles. And that's mm-hmm. what you got after is, okay, we can see these things clearly. Are all the principles different? And, yeah. and it's like, yes and no, right? Yep. Yep. One of my absolute favorite things. So if I was going to launch a new product, the first thing I would do is I would go on and I would look at our Amazon data and I would look at third party. And that is where the innovations are happening. These are guys who their sales expectations are like, maybe we'll sell a couple thousand, maybe 10,000. So this is a place where you see the category dynamics are so drastically different than when you look at the whole market. Here's an example. If you look at laundry detergent. So Far and away, you've got your tides and your gains and this and that. If we look at third-party sellers in Amazon, 30% of laundry is sold in laundry sheets. I mean, that makes up like less than 1% of, 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 of laundry sales overall. But that is where people are putting innovations. And one of the reasons why that does well online is it's very e-commerce friendly. It doesn't cost a lot to ship. You can ship it easily, you you know? And so that's where you get a lot of this really neat innovation. So I would go there to start to come up with my ideas. What are the trends in the category? What are people doing there? And then, you know, in terms of the basics and what we look for, you need to be able to have a product that offers something that is new, different, unique. And so I would always do survey research ahead of time. And it used to be that you, a manufacturer takes three months, four months, six months to actually come up with an innovation. And that's about how long it took to do that kind of research. Um, mm-hmm. But now you need to be able to evaluate concepts overnight so that you can yeah. give people these ideas. They see something online, you go ahead and test it, figure out if it has viability, and then and then work on that launch. Right. And I think there's a couple of really interesting themes in here because Justin, you're, I mean, I realize you could have spent three hours on it and you didn't, but in the time that you did invest in discussing data, you spent almost no time talking about what I would term as data science. You spent a lot of time talking about data uh, engineering, yes. right? Yep. And your 96% of what you were talking about wasn't about advanced analytics or, you know, my Asian shrinkage, which is Shree's favorite word, um, or, or whatever. It's just about that and how, retail media. how do you get the data hygienically in a place that you can use it? And I really, this is one of my... Yep. pet peeves at the moment. People keep saying, we need data scientists, we need data scientists. I was talking to somebody really smart at Google about this. They're like, you don't need data scientists. ChatGPT does what the data scientists used to do. What you need are data engineers. You know, it's like going to a restaurant. It's like, you don't bring a chef to a restaurant. You That's bring right. food. Right? Right. <laughs> ChatGPT is the chef. You, yes. what, the, what, the, what the chef needs is food. And, I, and one word that everyone started hearing me talk about is the words deduplication. Oh, yeah. Right? Yep. And, and so when we think about... It's actually Justin's favorite word. It is my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> it is my favorite word. <laughs> it, 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 when we talk about structuring data, right? You're, you're, you're a strange man. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first time I've heard that. Not the first time I've heard that at all. Different reasons. Though, different reasons. Yeah, I actually remember that from 25 years ago in my but this idea of okay we have to get a lot of data and i think for a lot of our clients retailers and manufacturers especially right the search for data was largely left for them and mm-hmm. so then there's these big pots of it and you're like well there's a lot of it and we can it's directional but it's all kind of overlapping and what we've tried to do is take that out and say okay we do have the ability to synthesize this data and level it so, right. And that's the deduplication that then allows everyone to act on it, right? We can nerd out all, all we want about different data sources and how we get it and all that. Here we go. He said the magic word to nerd out. Clean rooms <laughs> making dedupe easier or worse. Like yeah. Clean rooms should make it cleaner. Yes. Right? 
Look at you. <laughs> Is it true or false? Yeah, uh, it should make it cleaner. It should make clear. It's true. Well, about that. Should it? I mean, anyway, different topic. Do I need bleach in clean rooms? Or yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, you, need, you need sheets. So, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, 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 the clean room will sadly be full of sheets. Yeah. So, uh, we're going <laughs> to take a quick a reminder to our audience that today I'm speaking to Jenny Frazier, SVP of Omni Solutions, and Justin Belgiano, SVP North America Retail Measurement Products at Nielsen IQ. So uh, when we start the second segment of this episode, the first thing that came to my mind, Jenny, was you mentioned Amazon and how uh, the whole crazy dryer sheets example. Should manufacturers that have scale, that have already achieved scale in the marketplace when they put out innovation, usually brands that they put out innovation for already exist, so they have equity, should they place greater emphasis on Amazon when they put items out in the marketplace? So when we think about where you need to be distributed, we need to think about where do people buy this category right now? And if you're not there, you are losing that purchase occasion and that in that opportunity. So if you are in a category that sells a lot in Amazon, which is, by the way, many, many, many categories, it is essential that you look at Amazon. Now, I'm not going to say go ahead and just throw it in there because the thing with Amazon is you've got to think about the price to play. And so there is, it can cost so much money to be able to actually have your item there. And so you've got to really kind of weigh that with what that potential uh, lost opportunity is if you're not there. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so is your net advice, therefore, proceed, but proceed with caution? Absolutely proceed, but make sure that you've got strategies outside of Amazon to be able to buffer your sales. Yeah, well, and I think the distinction is an important one, though, between Amazon as a learning platform and Amazon as a commercial platform. Irrespective of whether you choose to sell on Amazon, you can't just pretend it doesn't exist as a, as a source of information and a source of insight and as a way to think about what's coming next from an innovation point Exactly, of view. and we've seen some pretty big manufacturers out there that have gone head-to-head with Amazon on certain categories where Amazon, you know, they, they make the decisions about the price, right? And so uh, they've gone head to head and say, we're we are actually not going to meet you on that price and have decided to completely walk away. And that is, um, you know, you're just going to see a lot more of this kind of going back and forth and really see who, who the biggest uh, players are. And, and that's a fascinating conversation because so often what you find is that the Amazon pricing problem is a symptom of a problem somewhere else because Absolutely. Amazon doesn't really price anything yep. particularly. Yep. Uh, Amazon says, look, market set prices. If, if your prices are screwed up, that's your problem, not mine. Yep. You know, not to paraphrase our wonderful friends at Amazon, but that's uh, they're like, look, you did this. So if you want to fix it, you fix it. But that's not our problem. Yep. So, uh, yep. so yeah, I think, it, I think it's interesting for brands that are struggling to manage their commercial ecosystem. Mm-hmm then end up pulling themselves off the fastest growing retail platform in America because they can't manage it on financial. Different topic. Yeah. So, uh, Shri, back to you. So, um, we kind of said to win in today's marketplace with innovation, you got to focus on the upper funnel piece for sure because you got to get the exact word was you got to get the eyeballs. Eyeballs were on TV a while ago and that's where people were going and many other mechanisms. But today, the eyeballs are new platforms. But what's clear is you mentioned influencer. You got to chase influencers to be able to get those eyeballs. But then we also said judgment is passed in a rapid two weeks after it's put out in the marketplace, which means the only way you can really measure, track, and pass that judgment is in e-commerce. And so if a brand wants to make sure that they win that judgment, which is why they put the innovation out, hopefully to go better for that 5% benchmark we declared up front, they got to win e-commerce. So um, winning in e-commerce, you all briefly touched upon SEM. 
what is SEM? Is it all content? You got to nail that piece. Is it much more? Is it actually tweaking search? Like what makes a brand successful two weeks in to get a successful judgment? Part of what I see, it, it's, again, I say it might not be helpful, but it's truthful. It is all of those things, but in a different way, right? So understanding, you know, brilliant basics of content, price, promotion, those things. We, we know those have to be done and brands have been working on that for a long time. But when we think about attributes, when we think about search, right? I mean, search is the new shelf. So if you aren't getting there, right, you aren't on shelf and nobody would find that acceptable in an in-store environment. So knowing those attributes, right? Having the ability point, to detail actually, is, yeah. is a really meaningful thing. Now, we also know that we spend a lot of time in the digital world looking at trying to explain why. So when we talk about digital shelf and analytics, yes, we're going to measure the sales. But then most of it is like, and here's why it happened, which... You're still looking in arrears, even if you're looking pretty close in arrears. So the real-time nature of that information allows you to actually be proactive and act. That's part of what we're passionate about when we talk about store-level information online with, with online retailers, right? And the speed of Amazon so that you can affect that in real time to actually win that shelf. It's simple things like out-of-stocks, right? Store fulfillments drive online when you look at online marketplaces outside of Amazon. The minute you start to drop an out of stock and a store in a certain zip code, you start to fall in search and it never comes back. So it's not enough to look at the end of the week and say, this is why it happened because you're done. Yeah. How, I need to be able to affect it real time. That's what we're passionate about equipping clients to do is don't just explain it. Get things that are real fast enough and granular you can act on. Yeah, I always describe it as a game of shoots and ladders, except that there aren't any ladders. That's it. Um, it's There's just shoots play. and moving one at a time. It comes back in my head, right? Like yes. if judgment is passed in two weeks, are brands of scale, let's say, trained well enough to operate in that kind of a dynamic environment to adapt based on what you just said? So, you know, what I would maybe paint a picture of is... 90% of a typical organization is built as an infrastructure for what happens in store, right? Yep. And yet what's happening online is a lot of our categories and departments are 30, 40% of all the volume. So is 40% of the infrastructure set up to work online? No. So do we have all the skills? Do we have the resources? Clearly not yep. to match that, but that's because it's changed so fast. Organizations haven't been able to keep pace, but I also think there's a flip side issue that comes out of this, which is that real-time granular data is really good at any number of things. It's really bad at telling you why things happen. This is yes. not what it's for. That's right. And one of the things I see digital teams doing, which becomes a problem, is taking the observed correlations that they see, turning that into causation, yes. and then having conversations with people that know that that causation isn't true. And then they're insisting that the, that the correlation's a cause. And the people that are sitting there going, well, no, that's not how that works. Yes. But they, the people that are understand the cause don't understand correlation well enough to be able to construct the argument back. And the people that are observing the correlation don't understand. I think it's a real opportunity for you guys to fill the gap. Given what you yes. know about correlation, what you know about causation, to close the gap on yeah. that, if you could do that, we'd all appreciate it. But it is such a... You know, you mentioned shoots and ladders. I think of it more as like whack-a-mole. Like yeah. it is, it is such a fire drill when it comes to um, a new item that really takes off, and it really comes down to sort of fulfillment and and distribution sure. and delivery of that. And so, one of the things you asked about, like what kind of metrics do we look at? So, you know, not only are we looking at online, offline, but you know, 
within in-store? Is it, you know, click and collect? Is it delivery? And then, you know, those are different consumers. How are they getting to that purchase? And for a manufacturer to be able to fit all of those different needs and all those different places and the retailers themselves are changing so rapidly, they're actually becoming distribution centers and fulfillment centers. And so that changes that whole relationship. And so we are in such a period of flux. If we have this conversation six months from now, we're going to have totally new insights. Which, um, Which yields the next question, because we've talked a lot about innovation on the brand side of things today. But from your perspective, from your product's point of view, from an innovation point of view, what are you sort of working on over the next 12, 24, 36 months to help solve some of these issues that we've been raising today? And how are we going to, what are we going to see from you guys that's going to better position the industry to understand what's happening in this new and very, to to your point, Jenny, very confusing world? I I think part of it ties into exactly what we were saying. Um, It was about high growth and the shift now is about efficiency and profit. And that change is now where analytics needs to be applied because it's not just high growth. Now everyone's talking about e-retail media. Five years ago, people were barely talking about it and trying to dump money into it. And now we're talking about, I don't want to waste it. I mean, that happens so quickly about efficiency. So that shift is where advanced analytics comes in and what we're focusing on about how do we improve efficiency. That That's one. That's a big. The other is, let's say, you know, because everyone's going to talk about chat GPT and generative AI, but really where that gets us, right? Ring the bell. New favorite word, chat right? GPT. But AI. the, the I... element to that is hyper-personalization. It's real impossible, right? So when we talk about media and advertising, we're talking about localized pricing by a shopper, right? Uh, we're talking about messaging by a shopper. That's what that enables. It doesn't like take the whole world away, but that true personalization can actually happen because the data is there, which also then I think this is my big picture hope. Brands have to reestablish authenticity and trust because the more and more that you're not sure you're talking to a brand, you're not sure you're getting a review from a real human being, the brands that can be trusted are the ones that will have an advantage. And that's something to work on now before that erodes. And that's a real opportunity. So those are some of the things I see. Any thoughts, Jenny? Yep. I I, I couldn't agree more. We are putting so much into analytics and you mentioned efficiency, but it's pricing, it's assortment. The assortment online versus in store is radically different. And so, you know, having those kind of insights, we've had 50 years to understand insights and high level analytics in store, but no one is really doing analytics with the just pure e-commerce lens. And we know price elasticities are totally different. The pricing can change 12 times a day, I think, on, on, on Amazon. Good how Lord. do you how do you model that and make decisions and, 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 and work with that? So it's because of the speed, it's because of the granularity, but we still need to apply these same types of insights, but yes. with just volumes more, more data. 12 times a day. What a fun episode. <laughs> uh, we've we've co- kind of covered the spectrum of launching innovation in a post-COVID era. So let me remind the audience that you can find all our content easily by going to a browser and type in cpgguys.com. That easy. And of course, if you think your company or you have some thought leadership to contribute to our community discussion, drop us an email at contact at cpgguys.com. Again, that's contact at cpgguys.com. And maybe you can join us on the podcast just like these two have today. Don't forget to drop us a rating at cpgguys.com. Why that's important, you can do that by going to our website in the navigation bar right up top on the right-hand side. Is That tells us whether we're getting the right audience, or whether we're getting the right guests and speaking about the right topics. And, of course, this podcast wouldn't exist 
without the 22,000 plus followers you essentially we have on LinkedIn. I can't thank you enough and for all the downloads we get every single week, episode over episode. Jenny and Justin, sincerely thank you for joining us on the podcast live. This is not an opportunity we get every single time on every episode, so this was extra special. Thank you for joining us live. Thank you so much for having us. This has been fantastic. That's super fun. Brian, it's that time. It's that time. It's the so time. Good, it's the time where I say back what they just said better than I will, but uh, but perhaps shorter, maybe. Well, this was a fantastic conversation. I also extend a uh, thanks, Jenny and Justin, to you both for this. Um, I thought we we started just in a really interesting place, looking at the post COVID world and trying to figure out. I think Jenny, the point you made about that it's not just that innovation stopped; it's pre innovation stopped as well. And I think there's a really interesting problem right now that manufacturers have because all the stuff that they should have been incubating and R&Ding wasn't getting done either. So the speed with which I now need to fix that process is a real, it's a mission critical risk. And to your point, the gap on that today isn't being closed by smaller manufacturers as much as it is by retailers who can start to see cracks in the price pack architecture, see gaps in the market, and source solutions to those gaps in the market because they've got incredibly clear visibility around that. Um, I like the way, Justin, that you characterized online as a less distinctive place. I thought that was a very interesting phrase to think about when we think about online and offline. And you mentioned several times the idea of context. And it's not that they're different places. It's that the context that people are in them is different. And therefore, understanding that context is more important sometimes than understanding the actual platform. Like understanding why someone's in the room is more important than understanding what the room looks like. And really being able to grasp that, I thought that was great. That whole conversation about week one being predictive of success, I think, is if we could do a whole 45-minute podcast on what that would then mean to companies that that are simply not wired to do that. Because I don't think any CBG company in the world that's bigger than a bread box is, is designed to do that because you need the playbooks and you need the data and you need a way to look at innovation much more systematically, perhaps, than we have in the past. I really like the concept of investment grade and social. I'm going to just steal that. Um, so I think it's just a really interesting way to look at that. And um, that conversation we had about data and the need to engineer the data properly so that you can make key decisions, I just don't think... Many companies outside of their data teams today understand the amount of work and handling money um, and muscle it takes to get data to be useful. And I think that was really interesting. This idea that searches the new shelf and that 30% of all the Amazon 3P uh, unit volume and detergent is in sheets is just fascinating. And I really I loved in the end the balancing act about how you looked at Three things. Number one, the shift to efficiency and all of the component pieces of efficiency. But then that balancing act between hyper-personalization and authenticity. And to me, because I'm a weirdo, those are two sides of exactly the same coin. Like, I think hyper-personalization is a mechanical tool that enables a consumer to feel like a brand knows them. But it's the authenticity and the trust that actually does that. And I think so much of the personalization conversation today is around the kind of I state your name type stuff um, where I can prove how good I am at personalizing. Look at me, I personalized. It's like, yeah, but nobody cares. Like, nobody cares that you know their name and you can put it in a blank on a form or that I can scrape data and put an ad in your Facebook feed that was relevant to something you're looking at 10 minutes ago. It's not how well you know me. Personalization is about how well I know you. And how much I, as a person, believe that this brand 
is the right brand for me. And I think that combination is going to be a really interesting one. So, uh, look, this was great. Thank you guys so much. This is super fun. Thank you, Brian. And that's a wrap for this episode of the CPG, guys. See you soon. Thank you. See you soon. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.